Good morning, everyone. It's a great privilege for me to be able to speak to you this morning. The passage I've been assigned is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. So let's read those verses together. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Amen. Perhaps you know the story of the young student at Spurgeon's Pastors College who was tasked with the message of preaching extemporaneously on a passage. Uh, Spurgeon gave that to his students uh, every now and then. And this particular student was tasked with preaching on Luke chapter 19 and Zacchaeus. And so the young man thought about this for a few moments and then nervously mounted the lectern and announced that he had three points. First, Zacchaeus was a man of small stature, and so am I. Second, Zacchaeus was up a tree, and so am I. Third, Zacchaeus made haste and came down again, and so will I. And uh, he promptly went and sat down after that. Uh, Apparently Spurgeon was quite impressed. But uh, you almost get the same feeling, or at least I do, uh, when you get given a text like this. The middle stanzas of Isaiah chapter 53. What do I do with this? Uh, E.J. Young calls this the loftiest height of prophecy. Barry Webb says this is the jewel in the crown of Isaiah's theology, the focal point of his vision. John Mackay says this sublime portion of scripture breaks through the flow of Old Testament revelation and rises unconstrained to new heights. So uh, when you come to a passage like this, the temptation is to think maybe the best thing for me to to do would be to read it, go and sit back down again. But I'm going to resist the temptation to do that, and with God's help, we're going to seek to draw out three points from these verses this morning. This is the fourth servant song. It's a song which, as you know, is all about the substitutionary sufferings of the servant. That is the basis on which the covenant of peace is extended to Zion, and the basis for which the offer of salvation goes out to the whole world. And so this is a mountaintop passage of scripture, and we're going to seek to draw out three big key themes from these verses this morning. We're going to think about the acknowledgement of guilt, firstly, the awareness of an exchange, secondly, and then thirdly, the acquiescence of the sufferer. Or to put it even more succinctly, we're going to think about the sin, the substitute, and the silence. Let's begin with the sin. And Israel's awareness of their sin. This is the first point, the acknowledgement of guilt. Uh, You can see that there in in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so there are a variety of different terms and references there for sin. Our transgressions, they say, first of all. That word means rebellion. 
It means to see a boundary line and then deliberately to cross over that line. It means to know that something is wrong and against God's law, but then deliberately with a high hand, as it were, to deliberately cross that line. And so there's transgression. Then there's iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the root word there means to be twisted and distorted, uh, bent all out of shape, you might say, today. And again, the reference is to our nature, to our fallen sin nature, the corruption of our hearts and minds, which is what God sees when he looks into us and sees our thoughts and ideas and desires. They're, they're warped and they're ugly. Uh, if they were to be replayed, if we had a, a plasma screen above our heads and our thought life was played on that, then you know we, we'd be embarrassed, uh, maybe even ashamed sometimes. It's iniquities, that's the word there. Uh, Then there's alienation referred to here as well in verse 5. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And the word peace there refers to reconciliation, refers to being in a right relationship with God, which by nature we're not because of our sin and disobedience. We don't have peace with God. Uh, Isaiah tells us that a couple of places. There is no peace to the wicked. And so... What we have here is this awareness that's beginning to develop among these people that there is sin and transgression, that all is not well, there is alienation, there is sickness even. Uh, Look what he says there, the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. This is another way of describing the effects of sin. Sin is like a disease, it's like a, a sickness And when we talk of it in those terms, our mind goes back to the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 1, where he talks about the state of Israel there in verses 4 through 6. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. So that was their condition. That's their state. They are damaged and broken and ailing because of sin. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. That was Israel's condition from head to foot. Damaged and broken and sick. And so this is what they're saying. We're estranged. We're we're diseased. We've gone astray, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so now the imagery turns once again, and now he's using the image of sheep, because sheep stray, don't they? Uh, Sheep are naturally straying creatures. They don't have to be taught that. They are naturally wandering, roaming, straying creatures, just like us. In a spiritual sense, we are wandering, roaming creatures. I did not love the Father's voice, the hymn writer says. I loved afar to roam. So that's the way we are because of sin. We have wandering hearts and minds, uh, a rebellious will uh, that loves to roam. We, we don't have to learn this. We don't have to be taught this. This is kind of hardwired into us by nature because of our sin. And so this is what they're saying in these verses. This is an awareness. This is an acknowledgement that is developing within spiritual Israel. Uh, those whose eyes have been opened to see this, that this is them. This is their own sin-sick condition. This is our sin-sick condition that's being referred to here. It's us. We. We are the problem here. You can see it coming through with all the personal pronouns. You've got about ten of them in this middle section. Us and we and our. Uh, This is our sin. 
This is our rebellion. This is our transgression. We've sinned. We've transgressed. We've gone astray. It's us. We, we, we are the problem here. It's like that old American uh, Pogo cartoon where he says, we have seen the enemy and it is us. Or um, G.K. Chesterton once famously responded to an editorial request that was put out by the London Times. They sent it out to a number of uh, illustrious authors of the day to answer the question, what's wrong with the world today? Expecting a sort of an essay in return. But G.K. Chesterton wrote back his sort of famous four-word reply, this, uh, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's what Israel is saying here. It's, it's us. We, we are the problem. There's an acknowledgement of guilt here. Secondly, there's the awareness of an exchange. Again at verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now one of the things you notice about this song is, you, you notice as you read through it, this awareness in them that is coming through, that, that in the, the, the believers in spiritual Israel, that they realized they were wrong about the servants. They looked at him one way, but now they realize they were completely wrong about him. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, you've been completely wrong about a person. Uh, I was born in England, I grew up in Norfolk, uh, near Norwich, and I used to like to go and watch soccer, go and watch my local team, Norwich City, I had a season ticket and would go uh, most weeks. And the beginning of the 1984 season, uh, I went there early, I wanted to get some autographs from some of the players, and saw the bus pull up. And so I went running over, and they all filed off, and uh, there was this man coming towards me. He was sort of shaping up to take my program to sign it, but I looked at him, and I thought, is he the physio or the coach, bus driver? So I just walked straight by, by him and went to the, uh, the other players, got some autographs, and then later on took my place in the stands, and the, uh, the PA, the radio guy, came onto the pitch and said, I want to introduce you uh, this afternoon to our new star signing, record signing, 150,000 pounds from Gillingham, Steve Bruce. And uh, I saw him, and I realized it was him, uh, the one I just walked straight past. I thought he was the coach or the physio. I thought he was a nobody. And uh, he was the star signing. The hopes for the whole season were hanging on this player. And I, I thought he was a no one. And it's the same kind of thing that you get here. Uh, Israel is coming to that awareness. They, they realized they were completely wrong about the servant. They thought he was unimportant. They thought he was a nobody. We saw that back in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Verse 3b, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. We thought about that verse yesterday. We did not esteem him. It means to, uh, to reckon up. It's an accounting word. We, we reckoned him up. We evaluated him. We thought he was nothing. We thought he wasn't important. A nobody. That's why he suffered the way he did. They thought he couldn't be Messiah. Messiah would never suffer in this way. Uh, Messiah's a champion. Messiah's a winner. But, but this fellow, look at the way uh, he suffers. He, he's a loser. In fact, the way he suffers, uh, he must actually be a sinner. That was their logic. That was the way they thought. Uh, verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's the way people thought in those days, that if a man was smitten, if a man was suffering under great pains of physical distress, then that must be judgment upon him for his crimes and misdemeanors. And that was the way they thought of Jesus at the cross. This is God's judgment upon him. Matthew 27, verse 43, the words of the scribes and elders and the chief priests, they were mocking him. It says, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. That's what they thought. Uh, this is judgment. This is vengeance. This is the, the finger of God upon him. He's being visited for his sins. 
But here, there is this awareness. Now, we were wrong. We got it so wrong about the servant, about who he is, and about what he was doing. We thought he was suffering for his own sins. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, suffering for his own sins and his own transgressions. That's what we thought. But now we see it. We were mistaken. We were completely wrong. Verse 4, surely, they say, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those weren't his sins that he was suffering for. They were ours. Those weren't his transgressions being visited there. They were ours. He was suffering for us. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And so there's this dawning realization on the part of these people that they were wrong about what was happening there and what was being done, what was being experienced there by the servants, that rather than being punished for what he had done, he's being punished for them. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The servant was punished for them. So they're saying in this section, yes, we've sinned, we've transgressed. It's our transgression, but he, the servant, has come. He's taken that in our place. You can see that by, again, the way they line up the, uh, the personal pronouns there. It's us, it's our sin, and him and his punishment. Verse 5, he was wounded, why? For our transgression. He was bruised, why? For our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And so this is what was happening. This is what is taking place at the cross. We thought he was smitten and afflicted by God, but now we see it. We were completely wrong. He wasn't suffering for his own sins. He was suffering for us and for ours. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now you know uh, the, uh, the word laid there is a very important word in the Old Testament. It's a word which means to, uh, to cause to meet, to gather up and to cause to meet all in one place. And it's used with regard to the priest in the Old Testament when a family would come and they would bring the animal for sacrifice and the family members would lay their hands upon the animal and so thereby their their guilt was transferred to the head of the animal which would be sacrificed. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. When it comes to the whole matter of the sin and transgression of God's people for all time, it was all gathered up and laid in one place, there on the head of the servant. Once heard Jeff Thomas uh, on uh, on this subject on a, on a different text, but uh, he talked about um, what happened on Good Friday, and he said on that day when God went looking for sin, he found it all in one place, all there laid upon the head of His Son, the servant, a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He suffered what we should have suffered. He became a curse for us. He was cut off. It says so that we might. Never be cut off. So this is the the heart of the Christian faith. This is the the sum and center of the Christian gospel, that we as human beings are ruined by our sin and rebellion, but God has provided a lamb who has come and taken that punishment for us. It's uh, It's the great exchange, Luther calls it. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. He takes our iniquities and all their filthiness and vileness and he gives to us a robe. A robe of perfect righteousness. Luther once put it this way in a letter to a friend. Learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him and despairing of yourself say, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. 
Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine, and hast given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not, and hast given to me what I was not. That's what we do as believers. We come and we, we lay our hands on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious till not a spot remains. So there's a transfer here. There's an exchange, the awareness of an exchange. And thirdly, consider, uh, we've thought about the acknowledgement of guilt, the awareness of an exchange. Thirdly, the acquiescence of the sufferer. The sin, the substitute, this is the silence Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now, the word oppressed there is a word that's used of of driving animals. It's also used in Exodus of the slave drivers oppressing the Israelites there. And that's the word that we have here. And it's a word which refers to how the servant will be treated very harshly and brutalized. And yet in response, he will say nothing. As a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He says nothing. And when we think of this, our mind goes to those uh, accounts in the gospel, about four of them, where we find the Lord Jesus, in spite of the suffering and the oppression, he remains absolutely silent. Matthew chapter 26, when he's brought before the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and those false witnesses come together, they pour out their lies, and Jesus there, the high priest got up and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Matthew 27, verses 12 and 14. Again, he's being accused there by the chief priests and the elders. He answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word. Or in John 19, after he's been scourged by those soldiers, and they've pressed a crown of thorns into his head, and then Pilate brings him out, and Pilate says to him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. A silent servant. Silent sufferer. Now why? Why was he silent? There's a couple of things that we can think of here. One was to prove himself willing. To prove himself a willing sacrifice. Because he could have, couldn't he? He could have spoken up at any moment. He could have raised an objection. You almost get the impression that Pilate was wishing that he would. But he didn't. Because he was to be a willing victim. The sin of man against God in the garden was primarily a sin of the will. The human will rebelling against God's will. And so to atone for that sin, there needs to be offering of a perfectly acquiescent will, a perfectly compliant will, which is, by the way, why uh, Hebrews 10 verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats can never ultimately take away sin because the animal there is, is an unwilling, an uncomprehending sufferer that doesn't know what's going on. But the servants here, with full awareness, full cognition of what was taking place, Jesus willingly submits as he drew near to the cross in John 18. And and Peter is pulling out the sword and trying to intervene to stop this all from happening. Jesus says, no, uh, the cup that my father gives me, shall I not drink it? And then moments before that, as he's in the garden and uh, he's beginning to get an awareness of the enormity, the horror that will befall him upon the, the cross... And in his human nature, he he shrinks. He recoils from the pain, but then he brings his human will perfectly into line with the divine will and says, uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, as it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. 
And so that's why he was silent, to be the willing sacrifice, but then also one other brief thought, and that was to bear our guilt. By his silence, he was acquiescing to, he was accepting our guilt. Calvin says this, This was the reason for his silence. Having become answerable for our guilt, he wished to submit silently to the sentence. He could have spoken up. He could have spoken out. Just one word would have done it. One word would have set him free and the whole case would have been thrown out. Pilate would have had him released. But he didn't. He, he remained silent. But aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad that he stayed silent? Because by his silence, he takes our guilt. By his silence, he takes our punishment. By his silence, he becomes our sin bearer. One man has said, his silence is our salvation. And so how we should thank God for the silent sufferer. How we should praise God for his silence. Because by that he has become our sin bearer. We can lay our hands upon him. Doesn't that cause you to rejoice? Like Charles Simeon, uh, the great old Cambridge preacher. You know, before he was converted, he was quite a profligate uh, young fellow. He was into uh, drinks and card games and theatre and all those kind of things. And then he was accepted into King's College in Cambridge. But uh, in order to be enrolled, he had to be willing to take Holy Communion at the King's Chapel on Easter Day. And uh, the thought of this threw him into a tailspin because uh, at that point in his life he said he felt that Satan was more worthy to take communion than he was. And so uh, he began to plunge himself into religious exercises and he began to fast and pray and he read various books. And then during Easter week he was reading Bishop Wilson's book on the Lord's Supper. And uh, particularly his comments on Leviticus chapter 16, where he refers to the typological nature of the sacrifices, pointing ahead to the cross. And in the book it said this, The Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of the offering. And Simeon said this, As God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head, then God willing I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins on the sacred head of Jesus. And then in his journal, he records later on, On the Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4, I awoke early with those words upon my heart and lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. Shouldn't that be our response as well? When we think about Christ, the servant, and what it is that he's done in our place, bearing our sin, being the silent guilt bearer for us to deal with all of our sins, all laid upon him, shouldn't that bring about in us the same joyful response? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Isaiah. We thank you that we find here the very heart of the Christian faith. We thank you for this great exchange and for a substitute who has come, our Lord Jesus, and has stood in our room instead. We thank you, our Lord, that you have given to uh, all of us here in this room an awareness of our guilt and an awareness of the servant and what he has done. Uh, Mine, mine was the transgression, thine the deadly pain. 
O Lord, may the thoughts of these things today fill our hearts and renew our zeal and our love for the Savior. And may we go from this place with a determination to be steadfast, devoted servants of the servant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.